Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Disrupt Podcast. I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And I'm Tom Jackson. Each fortnight, Disrupt Podcast brings you all the latest from the African startup ecosystem, as well as in-depth interviews with special guests. This week, we're talking retail distribution with the recently funded Trade Depot and digging into an African startup merger. But first, here's all the news from the last two weeks. African M&A is clearly on the rise. After a busy June that saw two African travel tech startups acquired by Hotel Online, July brought a merger. Mothering and childcare-focused e-commerce companies Baby Bliss Nigeria and Mums Village Kenya joined forces to create a pan-African entity, providing what they say is an unparalleled omnichannel commerce, community and content offering. We'll hear more about the deal later in the podcast. In addition to Baby Bliss, other Nigerian startups have also been progressing. Fintech startup Rise has been selected to participate in the US-based Techstars and Western Union Accelerator, gaining access to funding and mentorship. By taking part in the three-month program, Rise, a digital wealth manager connecting Africans to global dollar investments, will gain access to mentorship and $120,000 in funding. Meanwhile, House Africa, which has developed Africa's first blockchain-based land and property registry, has partnered the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company, NMRC, to help it scale further. New funds have arrived to further assist the constant startups. This fortnight saw the launch of E4E Africa, a VC fund aimed at helping South African entrepreneurs build internationally successful companies, with backing from the SASME fund. Meanwhile, South African social impact advisory firm Impact Amplifier partnered Google.org and the UK-based ISD to launch the Africa Online Safety Fund, a $1 million initiative that seeks innovative solutions to online safety challenges. African tech startups continued to raise, and some raised big. Kenya's Kamaza, a tech-enabled sustainable forestry company that works with smallholder farmers, secured $28 million in Series B funding to help it grow its impact. Certainly a company to keep an eye on. Elsewhere, five African startups using frontier technology solutions to address complex challenges and create fairer opportunities for children and young people were selected to receive equity-free funding from UNICEF's Innovation Fund. Two of those were Egyptian, VR-based health tech company VRreputic, who you'll hear from later, and learning app Agora for Education and Development. South Africa's Giraffe, Kenya's Angaza Elimu, and Tanzania's Inspired Ideas were the other three. There were some significant rounds in South Africa, led by Bitcoin exchange VALR, which banked a $3.4 million Series A to help it roll out new products and launch in additional markets. On-demand home cleaning startup Sweet South raised more funding from the Future Growth Development Equity Fund, while the Cape Town-based animation, gaming and VR company Seamonster took home one million. Meanwhile, there were two rounds in Morocco, fintech startup OnePay and e-learning platform Cool Schools both securing investment, while Tunisian startup Galactech, a telecom vast content aggregator, raised a six-figure round to help it further develop its products and expand internationally. Aside from the Kamaza round, the biggest investment of the fortnight went into Nigeria's trade depot, a B2B e-commerce platform for consumer goods in Africa, which raised $10 million in pre-Series B equity funding. An end-to-end distribution platform that aims to connect the world's top consumer goods companies directly to African retailers. Trade Depot has built a network of over 40,000 micro-retailers across Nigeria and now plans expansion into more cities and verticals after securing the capital from the likes of Partech and IFC. Tom caught up with CEO Onyakachi Izukane, to find out more about the round and Trade Depot's plans in the increasingly exciting African retail tech space. 
welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. Congratulations on the funding rounds. Would you tell us in a bit more detail what the investment is for and uh, your plans for the next year or so? So, I mean, very specifically, the, the focus, uh, I mean, the first thing for us is to drive our ongoing expansion, right? Um, in Nigeria, we're, we're in the process of expanding our footprint within the country to cover, you know, more cities um, across the country. This, for us, involves a few things. One would be to build out the retail presence in these cities, right? Uh, being essentially, you know, a marketplace, you need to have uh, both sides, you know, both demand and, and supply side. So the first thing is to build out the retail presence in, in these uh, additional cities and then extend supply side to ensure that you have, you know, the inventory you need to, you know, to service the orders you get from these retailers. And then, you know, deploy, deploy the required logistics uh, to support the actual fulfillment of these orders. So that's, you know, I guess in a nutshell, a lot of what our focus in Nigeria will be over the next um, 12 months. But um, in addition to this, we are, you know, we're running, I would say, two promising uh, pilots in um, a couple of cities outside Nigeria. And as part of this uh, phase, we would also be doubling down on our presence in, in these locations um, to, you know, move from pilot stage to, you know, uh, more more uh, extensive, if you like, um, operations. So that that I mean, from from a growth standpoint, that would be uh, a key focus. In addition, of course, you know, we're looking to extend financial services to our existing uh, customer base. Um, so I mean, some of the funding will be going towards building out the team and the product for that. There's a few startups active in this kind of retail distribution space across the continent, but not all of them are partnered with, what, 40,000 micro retailers and raised $10 million in funding. So I mean, what, what do you think is sort of your secret source or your special secret in terms of, in terms of being so successful so far? First of all, I think that we're, we're still very early yet. Uh, and that is looking, you know, in the, in the context of the size of the market, right? Um, so we reckon that um, we've tried to pay a lot of attention to growing in the right way. I, I guess it's something we'll get into in a, a bit more detail as we, uh, as we continue with the conversation. But the nature of the market requires one, you know, spending, you know, enough time to find models that, that work and are, are sustainable. You know, so I, I mean, I reckon there are different efforts uh, across the continent. Um, and, you know, many of these efforts will, will make progress. It's really a function of where, you know, the phase one is uh, at the moment. But I think looking at the size of the market, you know, you know, hardly anyone is scratching uh, the surface as yet. If we sort of think of the first wave of Nigerian and African e-commerce, if you like, as being companies like Jumia and Conga, it seems like the second wave is companies like yourself that are working to digitalize existing retailers, um, particularly in informal markets. I mean, how big is the opportunity that you see in terms of this brick-and-mortar informal market space? So, first of all, right, consumer goods retail in Africa is a trillion-dollar market, right? Uh, I mean, all of consumer goods retail. Now, today, very little of this, probably 1% or less in, in most markets, is, is online, right? So, it's a predominantly offline place, right? Meaning that the actual commerce happens, you know, in brick-and-mortar stores, yeah? Now, um, on average, $9 out of every 10 spent in offline retail is within formal retailers, you know, with mom and pop stores, independent um, uh, retailers and the likes, right? And in fact, in some markets more than others, Nigeria, for instance, has about 97%. Um, Ghana is somewhat less. I think Kenya is somewhere in the 70s and so on. 
you know, so as far as informal retail goes, the opportunity is massive, right? But, uh, you know, as far as tech is concerned, it's also probably not what you would consider the most sexy space um, for, for various reasons, you know, very fragmented supply chains. But um, your typical target user is also not, you know, the, the, the most readily reachable via social media and those types of platforms. In fact, they'll probably be more likely to hear stuff, you know, on radio than with a tweet and so on. But, but the market is huge and, and we find that very compelling. And we believe that, you know, successfully extending the power of e-commerce to this space solves the real and urgent problem and, you know, ultimately benefits all the parties involved. In terms of distribution and retail distribution and becoming a pan-African company, what impact do you expect to see from the African Continental Free Trade Agreement? Invariably, right? That, that, that agreement, subject to how it is implemented, has um, a lot of impact on the ability to move you know, logistics, cross-border logistics. But, um, and that, that, that has some impact, but I think it's important to understand that um, you know, retail distribution is local, right? The, the, the core of retail distribution is local. So there would always be the need for, you know, um, more, more long range uh, logistics to move products from, you know, one major hub to another. But the core challenge from a retail distribution standpoint is how does the product within a given territory get into all the right, um, um points of sales, right? So to that extent, um, while, I mean, there is the overall impact from the fact that, yes, uh, uh, cross-border transactions has an in, you know, implication on what product is available where, but the heart of the problem and the heart of the play you know, is, is pretty much a local one. When it comes to building a network of micro-retailers, how do you build that network at scale quickly? How do you go about building those kind of relationships and bringing those people into your network? So, I mean, there are a couple of things to consider. From a, from a growth standpoint, you know, I, I think, and people approach this different ways, but I think it's important for the growth to be sustainable, right? I, I think that um, it's important to not just focus on how you reach these stores very quickly, but how do you reach them with a value proposition that makes them stick with you, right? Because loyalty is a scarce commodity in this segment, to, to be very candid. Um, but but um, invariably, you know, it will tend to involve, um, you know, the right partnerships as well as, you know, invariably having boots on the ground where required to engage, educate on board and, you know, help the, the parties involved demonstrate um, value. You work with companies like Unilever, Nestle, etc. How easy is it to go and go about securing customers like that? For companies like this, you know, many of them have um, a, a track record of doing good business and, you know, significant volumes of business, you know, sometimes going back 100 years or more. You know, so they, they've had enough time to, to look at different models and work with models which today uh, demonstrate value. So you, 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 I mean, typically don't waltz in with a, with a, with an idea saying, hey, this is disruptive and, you know, everyone wants to go with you. So, uh, th there would be ample time required for, for, you know, working closely with these parties to understand from their standpoint what the pain points are and work with them to, 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 to build out, uh, if you like, an offering that adds real value to the, to the models that they have, right? So, I mean, in, in some cases, you would find that, you know, this process might take a bit of time. In, in some other cases, you, you meet the company at the point where they're looking to, you know, make certain changes to the way they're doing things. 
you know, but in the end, being able to demonstrate, you know, real value in a way that that makes sense for their existing business. So it could be valuable, but it could just come at too high a cost for their existing way of doing things. So being able to demonstrate value in a way that makes sense for, for, for their current business models, um, I reckon is key to, you know, make, uh, getting them on board. On the back of this funding round, you're um, launching a host of fintech offerings. Uh, interestingly, it comes at a time when fintech startups like Paystack and Flutterway, for example, are launching commerce-focused solutions. So I mean, what's behind this sort of crossover, if you like, um, between fintech and e-commerce that we're starting to see more of? Fintech or financial services and commerce are two sides of the same coin, right? Um, you would always need uh, finance financial leg in any commercial uh, transaction and it is commercial transactions that create the basis for for fintech services to exist so i would reckon that what is happening is that um you know the folks who are focused on building our financial services um especially you know for online transactions need to have more online transactions happening um for you know for for their financial services offering to 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 grow uh, significantly, and you know they're 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 going out there to 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 help facilitate that by rolling out their own um, uh, com- commercial offerings, and and I I reckon it's um, a flip side of that if you like uh, for, for what we are finding. So the ideal world for us will also have been one in which there were ready to run financial models that one could just plug into that that made sense um, uh, for the customer base that one is servicing. But I mean the market is where the market is, right? Uh, and that, I guess, is what is instructing you know that crossover that that we're seeing. If you look, at, let's say five years into the future, um, where where do you see Trade Depot being at that point? I mean, what markets has it reached? Has it secured further investment? And what's what's the exit plan, if you like? So we, we like to look look at that picture from an, sort of a, an impact standpoint, first of all, but also from the standpoint of um, what what portion of the market one is one is. Um, is um, dominant in so we five years from now the vision for us would be to be dominant across you know several key markets um, across the continent and in addition to that um, be be uh, pl- uh, the route to market of choice for for key FMCG uh, manufacturers in those environments so that that, that would be key um, we reckon that there are so many things involved in, in, in bringing this to, to to happen which include you know Consistently offering the right type of value to the to the customer base, creating additional uh, value add items like the financial services we're looking at, and so on and so forth. We anticipate that um, there's potentially uh, further uh, rounds of financing required to get there, but these are things that you know will become clearer as 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 we grow. But the general picture is one in which five years from now. Um, Informal retail on the continent will become less of a very fragmented um, uh, black hole for the typical supplier, and will become something that is easier to access simply by plugging into one or two key dominant platforms. Onyakachi there on Trade Depot's grand plans to bring together a fragmented informal retail space and create a hugely successful business while doing so. We wish them all the best. One retail space in Africa that suddenly became more unified in the last week or so is the one focused on mothering and childcare on the continent, 
with Nigeria's Baby Bliss and Kenya's Mums Village merging. Baby Bliss Nigeria is an established e-commerce player in the baby space, while Mums Village built a larger community as a parental advisory platform before moving into retail itself. The merger of the two forms the Bliss Group, a pan-African brand co-headquartered in Kenya and Nigeria that offers commerce, community connection, products and services to African pregnant women and mothers. I caught up with Mums Village founder and new Baby Bliss Group CEO, Isis Nyongo, to find out why the companies decided they were stronger together. Why did you decide to merge? It became clear that the merger made sense because we were two companies that were in different markets, but serving really the same, exactly the same target market, the middle income mother in Nigeria and in Kenya. We also had the same vision to, um, saw the same opportunity and had the same vision to build a pan-African platform that served this audience, you know, leveraging, leveraging digital tools. Um, and and had a very similar culture. And so the conversations between us did not start off, hey, we're going to merge, but they, they, they kind of organically got there in seeing that, you know, we can actually do, we can actually see a lot of synergies among, you know, with our company um, from a technology perspective, from a team perspective, and it would actually just be actually more efficient to build one entity um, to then really scale in those markets and, and go beyond into other parts of Africa in terms of a longer term strategy. Can you tell us what um, both of your user numbers um, were prior to the merger and whether you're both making revenues? Yeah, so both both companies are making revenue. Um, I think it's helpful to know that um, the Nigeria business is is pretty much only retail and e-commerce in terms of sales of products. The Kenya business was a content business in its origin that had just started building e-commerce. So it basically had a combination of uh, advertising and the beginning of e-commerce revenue. Um, in terms of the, the user base, um, the combined, so now the combined entity has um, 300,000 monthly users. Um, prior to that, it was about 100,000 from the Kenya side, 200,000 from the Nigeria side. Why is merging with another company a good idea? What are the things to consider? So the things that I have definitely learned and, and would say are important to consider is what is the um, kind of the, the visions of the of the companies and the cultures of the companies um, and really kind of understand those. I think I think those are really important and how aligned um, are those or if or how aligned could they become, you know, if, if they're not very aligned from the beginning. Um, and what is the, and is kind of the motivation, um, to do it really a shared motivation. Um, and that's why I think it it works very well. Um, also, you know, in, in our particular case, we were serving, you know, the exact same market target market, except in different, you know, physical countries. I don't necessarily think that always hundred percent has to be the case. You could probably merge and have kind of complementary um, audiences or products, but in our case, um, they happen to be the same that has made it, you know, significantly easier to just, you know, um, share learnings um, and under across markets and start to to build something that's stronger. Um, and I think particularly in Africa, because um, you could talk about mergers in many different parts of the world or within a country that, but I, I think, I think that in the kind of early stage, um, you know, tech community that I'm part of and, 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 and I see around me, I think, I really do think that mergers will um, become more common um, because I think that it is, it can be very hard, even in countries as large as Nigeria 
um, to always kind of start to build the scale. Now, of course, it depends on kind of the, the funding part of it. But even with that, it's, it's just really, really hard to to build countries, um, sorry, to build companies that that truly have a meaningful presence in, in multiple markets. How did the process begin? Great. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting to look back because it was, um, it, it did happen fairly organically, but I wouldn't say very quickly um, either, uh, just from the, from the beginning. So I think the beginning happened, um, it would be hard for me to pinpoint the time, but I would definitely say a couple of years ago where, and this is, there was no kind of looking at a merger certainly at that time, but what happened is I engaged with the um, one of the investors in this business who was also an entrepreneur, uh, someone I, I had kind of known previously, but, but not extensively and started, you know, just because we had the shared interest, right? So I was, you know, if, you know, it's a little bit, it's kind of, um, I would say the mom and baby media e-commerce space is fairly niche, right? There's not a bunch of people that you come across that are interested in this space and working in this space in, in Africa at this time. So finding somebody that was, and they were in a different market, it was more of a, um, Hey, we have a, we have a common interest. I'm doing this in Kenya. I would love to, um, you know, just a bit of kind of like, uh, how do you say mentorship or, or just sharing of an industry discussion of, hey, you know, you're seeing, what are you guys seeing in, in Nigeria? This is what we're seeing in Kenya. So really started off that way. I think over time, um, that was kind of fast forward a year and a half towards the end of last year. And um, at that point, um, I, you know, so I'd say the initial interaction was we had, we as Moms Village had only been doing content and we had not gotten to the e-commerce business. So I think I was looking for mentorship and guidance around the e-commerce um, opportunity and, you know, uh, model, et cetera. Um, so fast forward when I, um, I was in Nigeria end of last year um, and you was kind of like, Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's pick up this conversation again and, and assess where both businesses are at because we had, we were, I would say three to four months into building our e-commerce platform. And at that point it was, again, not even necessarily going to be a merger, but I think in, in discussing a lot in a lot more detail, and I understood a lot more of uh, for myself, what we were experiencing from an e-commerce perspective, that that conversation is then what led to, Hey, we should look at actually trying to partner together. And out of that very rapidly became, I think, you know, we collectively think a merger would, um, would actually make sense in this case. And, and then we moved really fast. I, I, you know, one of the things is on the other side, they, um, they had experience not with this business, with other businesses actually doing mergers um, of digital businesses in Africa. And so for me, that was extremely helpful because I think it, it helped us avoid some of the pitfalls. It, it helped us um, to move very quickly in making some of the decisions around the structure. And, you know, it probably would have been done earlier in the year, except COVID definitely slowed things down. Um, and then, um, so I think from the point that we made a decision to actually completing it, I would say it was under six months. What are the steps to emerging? Some of the, the very practical steps are once you kind of made a decision that that is the course to take, there's quite a lot of uh, legal work that goes into it. And that that's really what is, I find, the slowest part, um, you know, because I think the alignment was there, you know, now just, just getting it done. And so then making decisions about where you're going to, especially when you're looking at something that's multi-market, where are you going to... Um, uh, set up the legal structures and what does that structure look like? So there's quite a lot of 
um, legal counsel that comes in to say um, and evaluate, you know, your different options around there. There's um, so that's a big component. A big another big component is aligning all shareholders um, on all sides of the, you know, on, on both companies to um, to agree to this, um, to buy into it. And so that 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 is um, a big process on its own. I think those those two components, and and then also from a timing, you know, I think once you have that aligned, is then the timing with um, how do you then communicate that to your teams, right? So I think senior leadership, um, depending on the type of organization and how it's set up, or would be involved in um, some of these decisions. But then once once you kind of have made that decision, shareholders on board, you're really clear on the legal path forward, um, is then um, informing the team. So I think we took the view that you let the team know as early as possible about the changes. Um, and then, you know, so all of those things are done like far before, you know, these things become public. Yeah. And where did you end up uh, domiciling the company? The way that we've structured it is a holding company in the U.S. Actually, um, so we made the decision to to go to the U.S. and then have um, the subsidiaries in both markets. And why did you go to the U.S.? Um, so we went to the U.S. for you know I think a couple of different reasons. I mean, there, one of them, which which is significant, and I think this is something that it would be it'd be helpful to other founders, is really understanding the the shareholder, um, the shareholder preference and tax considerations across countries. Um, and so part of that led to a decision around the U S because we do have a number of U S investors. And last but not least, what advice do you have for startups looking into merging? I, I would really advise that you look carefully and experience. And I know it's harder now because we can't move around, um, easily, um, to really put kind of culture and the org- like the, the culture fit as something that's not deprioritized because I think it can be um, oftentimes and I, I just wouldn't deprioritize that. I would really look at um, what are you know would we actually work well together or if people are going to leave an organization upon this is it is that would, would the whole, would everybody kind of be, what, what are the things that we can live with and really kind of, um, hammer that out early on. And cause if it, I, I think that some of the, the, those, those things are kind of swept under the rug that can be just really big challenges, you know, f- further, further down the road. Um, and yeah, and just, I think that everybody re- be really aligned about why, why you're doing it, um, that there's no, that there's no doubt, uh, around that. I mean, I have heard and I've, I've not experienced this because this was something that was very driven um, by me and, and on the other side, um, leadership there. But I, I think I have heard in several cases that when sometimes when it's a really external external um, party that whether it's potential investor or stuff that's really trying to push a merger, that that can be really a challenge if that's not what the, the founders have bought into. So that's I think that's something just to to also consider. the founder of Verapeutic. There are over 100 million children suffering from learning difficulties and developmental disorders worldwide. 
Usually, families follow up with one or more therapy center on a weekly basis, aiming to help their children acquire essential life skills and lead a normal life. However, traditional intervention approaches fall short of achieving the hoped effectiveness and efficiency. Backed by an ever-growing scientific evidence, we are realizing a new hope for special education at Virapeutic. We design virtual environments specially tailored to instill diverse life skills in children, cognitive, motor, social, and academic skills, beyond the confinement of traditional therapy rooms. Currently, we collaborate with renowned therapy centers in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, with several expansion opportunities in MENA, Africa, and North America. Therapeutic is among the recipients of the UNICEF Innovation Fund in 2020. We are raising 500,000 US dollars and looking for more partners in the healthcare sector in Africa and worldwide. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. As ever, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye.